On Tuesday, May 19th, Oregonians are going to take their turn the primary season. Here in Portland, four of the five city council seats are going to be decided, including the mayor's race. That's most of the decision-making power on the city council decided this year. Now we're going to hear from candidate for mayor and current mayor, Ted Wheeler. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, and thanks for coming. The As we were talking a little bit before we started, at this very moment, you're both a candidate and the mayor. Now, I know that sounds absurd. That's true for anybody running for re-election. But during a global pandemic, it feels a little bit different. Yeah, well, it, it, it is different first right off the bat because I'm the first candidate and mayor this century in the city of Portland. I'm the first person to seek re-election this century. But what makes it a little dicier right now is we are in the middle of a public health crisis. And so I'm out there speaking a lot using the language that's provided to me by public health authorities. I'm not bird-dogging this. I'm not going off uh, on my own. And people need to trust government more than ever right now. They need to understand the messaging. They need to trust that messaging and believe that it is coming from public health experts, not a political candidate. So it does get a little dicey. I want to get wonky fast. Sure. We've seen a stock market crash. You can call it Mm -hmm. a crash Mm -hmm. at this point. The last time we saw a stock market crash, the unfunded liabilities of local governments doubled, right? The long tail obligations that we have to retirees, for instance, in in primary part, don't go away just because the corpus of our retirement funds has been reduced, the investment funds. How are you thinking about the fiscal realities of Portland right now, not only for the next mayor for the next four years, but how that plays out beyond that? And does the state have a role to help local governments in times when there is this large unfunded liability? The, the answer is yes. Uh, first of all, we've seen a major correction on Wall Street. We don't know how far it'll go. It doesn't feel correct right now. It feels very incorrect. It it most certainly doesn't, but I'll also tell you the markets were looking for an excuse to correct before this happened. But think about PERS, for example. PERS is a $75 billion fund. It is not managed for the short term. It's managed for the long term. The assumption is it'll be around in perpetuity. And so they make investments based on their long-term views of the economy. Something else we did, because in, in 2008, we saw a lot of PERS retirees portfolios wiped out, particularly people who are just about to retire. So we've corrected that something somewhat in recent years by creating a separate account that people could choose, whereby the closer they get to retirement, the more conservative their investments would be, and they would be more likely to hold up. The corpus of their retirement plan would hold up in times like these. But you asked also about the role of government. I think it's very important. We saw in 2008 the Obama administration coming in big on infrastructure and support for public employees and that had a made a huge impact. Here here in Oregon some of the the large transportation projects and other capital construction projects that were funded by the federal government were the only things keeping the trades employed during the great recession. And even at the local level, we're now looking through our economic development agency, Prosper Portland, on how we can help small businesses and small organizations and what strategies we could employ to help prop some of these organizations up during what's going to be a very challenging economic environment. And if I I could just give you one, one of the things that kept me up last night, think about an organization like an arts organization. Let's just randomly pick the Oregon Symphony. And I, I haven't spoken to them yet. But clearly, they get more than 250 people in a room. There's close proximity. 
And so think about the implications for them, given that like most arts organizations, they're always right on the economic edge anyway, and what this could mean. We could see the repercussion of layoffs beginning fairly quickly in this community. We could see arts and culture organizations, nonprofits, and small businesses really hurt by this downturn, particularly if it's prolonged. And so we need to start thinking now about how we're going to get through a potential significant and maybe long-term economic shock. Talk about scenarios. Uh, As you were saying, you can't right now predict whether it's going to be a high curve or a low curve, whether we're going to get through this fast or slow. But if you were going to paint three scenarios, right, the good news, bad news, somewhere in between, paint those pictures. Well, right now, um, it's pure speculation. And I try not to speculate. I try to get my information from public health authorities. And what they're telling us is they don't know yet about the longevity of this crisis. It could be that at the end of this flu season, we start to see the cases of COVID-19 go down, just as you would at the end of a regular flu season. That would give the CDC and others a little more time to come up with an immunization strategy, hopefully before next year's flu season begins. On the other hand, uh, even if we go through this for, say, a month, if businesses are basically closed for a month or people aren't able to work for basically a month or this shock continues, there's no way that this won't create some longer-term economic impact. And so while it's a public health crisis at the moment, I'm already gearing up for the likelihood that this is going to become an economic problem potentially for the longer term. So what do you do in that context? Let's say it is. Let's say this is something akin to 2006, 2008, 2009, 2010, or something, you know, maybe it's just 1987 where people lose a bunch of their pension funds and hedge fund guys lose a bunch of money. Or maybe this is more like 1929 when this lasts and is a lasting problem that transforms the American economy. What is the scenario that you are bracing for and or What do you do in that context as the leader of a local government? Right. Well, the scenario I'm bracing for, the worst case scenario, and again, I I have no factual data to suggest that this is actually how things are going to turn out. But the worst case scenario is that this lasts for three, four, five months. We have basically businesses shut down. People aren't gathering together, uh, you know basic organizations who are expecting to have their fundraisers this spring don't have their fundraisers. People aren't attending civic events or arts or cultural events. Yeah, we just events. canceled ours, right? right. And, and, they, now we're, and now we're looking at the scenario like, what does that right. mean for our budget? Everybody's canceling yeah. everything. And even think about you know the schools closing and some of the people who will inevitably be laid off as a result of that. This will trickle through the economy. So now the question is, what are the strategies? The good news, if you can call it that, is we've seen this movie before, and we know what strategies worked in 2008. And the best strategy was the federal government took significant economic steps towards keeping the economy going. And when President Obama issued basically zero interest bonds to allow states to be able to engage not only in the construction of infrastructure, but also supporting the continuity of government, state and local government, that had a huge positive effect in helping us to weather the storm. We're also trying to think at the local level about how to protect the good work we've done through the Inclusive Business Resource Network, through the Neighborhood Prosperity Networks. We've spent a lot of time not just on 
uh, job training and technical assistance, but also on store improvements, on helping people gain access to retail space, to supporting the Mercatus and the My People's Markets. We want to keep those things going, but it's going to be very challenging to do in this new environment. Where so you, what do you do you that? Through like little micro grants? Do you do it like by turning over, by using the city's sort of bonding ability to borrow money to be able to distribute to community organizations? Like what's the, what does it actually look like? You can root for them. You can say looking, nice things. We're looking at all those strategies. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm putting my former state treasurer hat on for a moment. Yeah. It's a little perilous to do it because it's not my job anymore. But we missed an opportunity in 2008 that I've regretted ever since. And that is that the federal government was artificially keeping interest rates effectively at zero. And the stock market had gone down substantially. We could have issued much more debt with a zero repayment rate and taken those proceeds and invested them in an already depressed stock market, which really was more we sort of missed a crisis. to go up. And we could have created, for example, a permanent growing endowment for job training and education. Had we done that in 2008, we'd be sitting on about $150 for million. We missed the opportunity to land bank and to create housing opportunities, again, using the artificially suppressed interest rates provided by the federal government. And so I, I hope we get a little more innovative and are willing to break out of the box a little bit during this time to get back on our feet much more quickly. And we're already looking at the local level with Prosper Portland and some of our finance folks and our bond experts to see what can we do to keep Portland's economy humming. I mean, right, right now we have one of the strongest economies in the North, or at least two weeks the North American continent. Every day is a new day, Jefferson. But you know, we shouldn't act like we're surprised that this happened. We, we live in a time of social media. Word travels quickly. Things like this happen. There will be overcorrections. And we need to, you know, we need to prepare. We need to, to address the pandemic effectively. And we also need to keep our heads screwed on straight and really be thoughtful about how to keep our economy humming, keep people employed, make sure that families can stay in their housing. Uh, you know, I, I'm also, you know, I'm calling on people. We, we said that the city of Portland is going to suspend uh, anybody having their water or their sewer shut off for non-payment. That, that would be ridiculous at this time when we're telling people to be healthy, to do those kinds of things. So I'm calling on the broader community, including the private sector, to ask themselves, to challenge themselves this week, what can they do to make life economically... Anybody doing something interesting? Want? Anybody that you've called on who's responded in an inspiring way? Well, they're, they're, you know, it, it's early, um, but I predict that by Monday, you're going to hear many things that many organizations and employers are doing to make sure that people stay employed, that, that uh, paychecks keep flowing as much as possible, that product uh, keeps flowing, that services keep flowing, but we're going to have to be innovative about it. And I, I want to give a shout out to the schools. The schools have had to react super quickly on this. And it's impressive to me to see how quickly schools are moving from classroom-based approaches to web-based approaches literally overnight. That's the kind of innovation that this should be driving and the kind of thinking that we should be engaged in. What about landlords? What about landlords giving uh, giving rent breaks? I mean, if, if immediately landlords said, hey, we're going to shave 5% now, so many landlords are so highly leveraged, right? That if right. they reduce their, you know, the bank's going to call their note That's the if, they, if, they, uh, if they lower rents too much. But if they shaved a little bit, right, gave people a little bit more money in their pocket to pay their delivery fees if they're not going to WinCo, if instead they're ordering online or if they've got to do without something for 
for a while, give, you know, help them weather a storm for all these people whose jobs are event driven, who people work in venues, people work in bars, ain't nobody going to bars, people are, whose jobs are tip based, who aren't earning their tips. Uh, what about something like that? Well, uh, it, already under consideration. I spent a good chunk of last night thinking this through. Here, here are three steps. If I could, if I could do this myself and yeah. I didn't have to have a thousand other people say yes first, right. here's what I would do, particularly with regard to rents. I would have uh, landlords not evicting people for financial reasons. Sure. In other words, fin- you know, uh, non-payment at this time. That is not helpful. Number two, I would ask that anybody who has the ability to curtail fees and other types of uh, bills that people pay, like the utility bills that, that we have now suspended, this is not the time to be hard about collecting it. And number three, you just pointed out there's a trade-off. I've got people today just saying, why don't you come in and tell landlords you know, non-payment, they can't evict people, et cetera, et cetera. But you have just correctly pointed out that a lot of landlords owe payments to their banks. So we also have to go up the food chain to the banks. And I intend to do that, to talk to the banks and say, we, if we are putting restrictions on landlords evicting people for financial reasons, can the banks also sacrifice here and work with us to not be too hard on the landlords so that they, you know, we don't want them to lose their buildings or have them go into receivership or anything else. That's not helpful to the economy. It's not helpful to the tenants and it's not helpful to our local landlords. So there's a lot of work that needs to happen in the next couple of days to make this a reality. Let's start this, or since we're sort of midway through, let me ask you the question that ask everybody, which is, who are you? Why are you running? Well, that's, that is a broad question. Um, who am I? Uh, how many minutes do I have? <laughs> yeah, I'll give the short version. The, the, the short version is this. I, I was born and raised in the city of Portland. I love the city of Portland. Uh, it's changed a lot over the years from the time that, that I was uh, a kid, from the time that I was in high school here at Lincoln High School, uh, to the city that it is today. But in terms of who I am, uh, I'm somebody who decided a long time ago that I would never be satisfied in life if I wasn't engaged in the community, if I wasn't solving significant and meaningful problems, and that I couldn't go to bed at the end of the day if I didn't feel like I'd actually provided value to the community. So I love being the mayor of Portland because it, it truly is one of the most dynamic, interesting, progressive, successful communities it's known for its world-class livability. Uh, it's a place where people can fu- come and, and feel like they belong to something bigger. And so in that sense, it's really exciting. In terms of um, why I want to do this, I actually feel a sense of responsibility. And, and people mostly laugh when I say this, but I, I really mean this. I have a background that gave me a lot of privileges and opportunities that most people in this community dream about. I had a roof over my head. I never had to worry about it. Nice roof. I was a nice roof. I was fed. I knew that uh, I wasn't going to end up on the street. I knew I had access to good education. I was surrounded by a family and a community that supported me and cared about my future. And everybody should have those same opportunities. And we're not really a, a, a just society until people do. Yeah. And so when I took this role as mayor, it wasn't just because I thought it would be super fun. You're one of the richest mayors we've ever had. The, uh, well, I, I don't know that, but I, I don't, you know, it could be true, yeah. Well, one of us is pretty broad. Uh, it, what's the biggest money problem you ever had? And 
if there isn't one that you can point to, how do you re- end up relating to the people who are right now wondering, oh my goodness? And, and I'm not saying it like, mm-hmm. I too grew up with a roof over my head. I'm, I too need to claim my own privilege. But how do you find yourself mm-hmm. relating to or what position, what do you do to put yourself in the position so you can understand what's going on with somebody who's literally wondering if this last three months, what are they doing for right. June rent? Right. Um, it's a fair question, and it's one that, that people ask all the time. Sure. I, I'm a walking stereotype. I mean, people can't see me on the radio, but I, I am a walking stereotype of a middle-aged white dude. And, um, I, you know, I believe that my background, my experience, my set of values, my belief that we should all have each other's backs, that, that your success isn't necessarily because of you. And I'm pointing at me as I say that. Yeah. Um, your success is a responsibility and an obligation to turn around and help other people be where you are. I take that responsibility extremely seriously. And as proof of that, and the reason I think I have broad support as mayor is because I have done that throughout my career. When I was at Multnomah County, I was uh, the first elected official in this state to support and actually enact transgender health benefits. I was the first to support and actually enact ban the box so that people who would come out of incarceration had a shot at a job and recovering their life. Uh, I helped champion the health equity initiative, which is now a national best practice model, looking at health outcomes based on racial and geographical disparity. And as I moved into the treasurer's office, the thing I worked the hardest on was creating, with others, the nation's first state-sponsored retirement plan that is mobile, that would allow seasonal workers and low-income workers and others to have access to a decent and secure retirement. And as mayor, the part I really love about this job is... It isn't doing stuff that's familiar to me. It's doing stuff that isn't familiar to me. Working with the North Northeast Housing Strategy, starting the Portland Committee on Community Engaged Policing, which is mostly made up of, of uh, African-American local residents, but many others as well. Uh, in the work that I'm doing with Joanne Hardesty on the Portland Clean Energy Fund and the street response, that's where the rubber meets the road. And so while I don't come from those lived experiences, while I don't have that background, while I could never claim to walk in the shoes of other people who have, I believe I've demonstrated not only a desire, but also an ability to work with people who are very different, bring us all together and put strategies in place that make a difference in this city. And that's one of the things that's cool about this city is because you couldn't do this everywhere. Portland is unique in that regard. Yeah, even voters will make you do stuff. Yes, yeah, absolutely, and they should. If you're looking back at your life and you're going to evaluate your greatest accomplishments by things that took real courage, that were hard strategically, it wasn't just, oh, yeah, everybody wanted this to happen, so we did it. And it impacted the most lives, both either, but preferably both in the near term and the long term, that Mm -hmm. sort of impacted the trajectory of the city to serve more people, make their lives better, bend the arc of history towards justice. If you were going to pick two things, you can pick a different number if you want, but if you want to pick two things that you think you'd be proudest of in your first term, your the term you've had as mayor, what would they be? Well, uh, th- that's a great question. It's provocative, and I wish I had more time to think about it. But if you know, just off the top of my head, two things. Number one, big picture. We have, as I just said, one of the strongest economies, or did, uh, in the United States. And on a household income basis, median household income basis, out of the thousands of cities in this country, we are, all, we are actually defined as the 10th wealthiest. Despite that, 
despite those statistics, the reality is there are a lot of people in this community, many listening to this right now, who are hanging on by their fingernails. And COVID doesn't help any, by the way. Yeah. And, and, and I don't just mean for housing, but for basic health care, for the, the food they need to put on their table for their kids, um, you know, the, the ability to see a stable future for themselves and their families in this community is in jeopardy. And so a broad brush overarching theme of my administration has not been economic development the way past mayors have described it. It's shared economic prosperity. And we've retooled Prosper Portland to help us do that. So we're working with women and minority business owners. We're providing technical support. We're helping them get on their feet. Last year, the the Inclusive Business Resource Network that we started a couple of years ago helped over 1,000 small business owners and operators and entrepreneurs uh, with their success, the Neighborhood Prosperity Network has been tremendously helpful. The Portland Means Progress Initiative that I created to help get young people of color into the workforce, to help them get their feet under them, to help support contractors who are women and minority contractors and create a culture of inclusivity and diversity. These, these may seem like small things independently, but when you do them collectively and when you think about how to rebuild the city, for example, the, the, the Broadway corridor over by the post office, we're letting community lead on that initiative. We have the chance to create a broader economic prosperity. The second issue is without question. We can't continue to say we're a progressive, successful city when we have so darn many people living on our streets. And and that has been my primary focus is to work with the county and, and service providers and many, many others to make real inroads on our homeless population. And for me, that means retooling towards the chronic homeless population, those who've been on the streets the longest, those with addiction issues, mental health, uh, other disability issues, we are, are refocusing our efforts on that population, and we have to make progress there. It's an imperative. What's the best thing you've done on that front, or what's the dumbest thing you've done, or the most important thing you failed to do? Well, this, this is me we're talking about. So, sure. You know, you know, dumb can come in spades in my life, and at least I'm smart enough to recognize it. Uh, but in terms of smart, we've done some really good stuff. And, and again, I'm, I'm not just talking about me. I work with a, a whole coalition of, of dedicated, passionate people. But we know that when we focus our attention and our resources on a segment of the homeless population, we can make true progress. And we did that with homeless veterans. We have done that with homeless women. And we've done that with families. And recently, we implemented what's our, our chronic homeless plan to reflect the fact that more of the people on our streets, particularly those who are unsheltered, are chronically homeless. So they've been there a while and they have coexisting conditions. We are now not just creating shelters, we're creating navigation centers. So when somebody comes in, they're connected to services. The intention isn't for them to go back on the street. The intention is for them to get treatment for substance abuse, to connect them to mental health services, domestic violence survivorship services, disability services, benefits that they're entitled to that they may not be connected to, help people get back on their feet. The next thing we did related to the navigation centers was realized a lot of the folks we're talking about aren't going to come to us. They're not going to go to a shelter, even if it's a, a, a navigation center. We have to go to them. 
And so working with the county, deploying the navigation teams, I think has been a fantastic and so far effective strategy by going out to the camps, going out to where people are and connecting. How does COVID-19 change that strategy or what does it do? All the people, I mean, I think of so many. In fact, I asked some people, hey, what should we ask the mayor? And it's amazing how many of the questions seen through the lens of the current health crisis and particularly the intersection of a lot of these issues, right? What should we do with art organizations? Should we encourage or discourage or ban gatherings under 250, right? Sort of between that 49 and 249 level. Should we, uh, what are we going to do about our houseless population who not only won't have access to tests, but also, you know, their interactions are not, they're not going to have access to all the information necessarily and will be the most vulnerable and many of whom might be immunosuppressed or have underlying health conditions. Uh, how do you, again, connect that, what you've been talking about right now to what we started talking about. Yeah, so this is an all-hands-on-deck public health crisis. And the good news is government's not going to do it all alone. And in fact, I, I read a good newsletter yesterday from Street Roots, and they talked about how they're creating go teams, how they're creating strategies to help get the word out to the homeless population and check in on people who are vulnerable, which, by the way, is virtually everyone who is on the streets. In terms of our government response to the shelter system, we are working very hard to get people who are in the shelters who are at the highest risk levels. So those with the, the, the most significant health issues, those who are older, we're getting them out of the shelters and either putting them into motels with vouchers or other circumstances where they are more likely to be successful throughout the COVID-19 issue. We also have our our Hucker Camp remediation program, they're also changing their strategies based on this as well. Th things are gonna have to change and the, the thing I want people to know about the homeless population on our streets is even if, you know, by definition, some of the people on the streets don't meet the risk criteria, you know, young guys, for example, they still are at high risk for COVID-19 because they probably have coexisting health conditions or other circumstances that, that make them high risk. So what I would tell people to do is um, you know, again, I get all my information from public health authorities, but I'll, I'll go slightly off script and say, don't be stupid about it. Um, you know, what the health authorities are telling us is less than 250 is fine indoors, provided that you can maintain social distancing. Social distancing, as they are defining it, is have people about six feet apart from each other. So if you can have an event where people come in and they can still maintain that social distancing. Health authorities tell us that's fine. They also tell us that at-risk populations should not participate. They should not attend. So if they're older, if they have health conditions, if they have weakened immuno systems, um, they should not participate. And the most important advice anybody can give right now is if you are sick, stay away. Any of this stuff scare you? Um, you know, ironically, it's not the pandemic that scares me. It's this is our first pandemic in an age of social media. And so information and misinformation is flying around at the speed of light. And my concern is the public perceptions are getting ahead of what the public health authorities are advising. And so, you know, we'll, we'll learn a lot from this exercise. This is not the most virulent type of pandemic scenario. I'm not in any way belittling it or saying it's not serious. Lives are at stake. 
but the mortality rate here is about 1%. What if this were a pandemic with a 20% mortality rate? Yeah. Would we really be able to say right here and now, Jefferson, that we're prepared for it? I think the answer is unequivocally no. So I hope as we go through this pandemic and we learn from it that we have a you know, regularly ongoing stood up response to pandemic, because we're going to see more of these. The world's becoming more populous. We live in closer quarters. We are now converging here in the United yep. States on urban areas. This is a reality that we must prepare for. No, mayor's a big deal in this thing. What about drive-through testing centers? Uh, when can we get these at scale? We've seen them in Germany and Japan. The difference between Italy's response and South Korea's response, uh, for instance, and so and people can point to China. China has a very different governmental system, so I'm not saying that we're going to you know run exactly like China, but South Korea does have some lessons we can learn from. And one of them is making sure that people can test and then quarantine relatively quickly. What can a mayor do to make sure that we're all, we're, it's not only Tom Hanks who gets a test? Really, those tests should be reserved for people who are at high risk. And so, you know, that, that's neither here nor there. Now we're not going to get invited to the Academy Awards, Jefferson. Yeah. We blew it. <laughs> but with regard to drive-through, um, again, this is something that the governor and the director of the Oregon Health Authority, Paul Allen, were asked yesterday in the press conference they spoke to this issue. Um, it is something that, that obviously the Oregon Health Authority and local health officials have on their radar. The city's role in this would be permitting. We would, you know, the city has a standing. Just let them um, do it. Yeah, yeah we, we absolutely have a, a, um, a prohibition on drive-throughs in the city of Portland. That's been around for a number of years for a number of planning reasons. We would have to lift that preemption. And of course we would do it. Question from a listener. When you were running for office, you promised to have a shelter bed for every unsheltered homeless person in Portland by the end of your second year in office. Uh, you can correct that if that's a misquote. Uh, when asked about why you were unable to miss this goal, you said you underestimated the gravity of the situation. The way they put the question is, why should we believe anything you say now? But the uh, is, there, is there any lesson learned from that? Uh, any comment you want to have in response to that question? Yeah, uh, I, I have a lot to say on that. First of all, I don't think any of us four years ago could have predicted how the homeless crisis would change. And it has changed. It's changed markedly. And anybody who just walks out their front door or walks out onto the street sees that to be the case. I don't believe we had an understanding of how um, it wouldn't just be about shelter and getting people inside. That's where we were five years ago. Get people off the streets, get them into a shelter, get them out of the rain. That no longer cuts it. What you need to do now is connect people with services in order to help them get off and stay off the street. So now the focus isn't just on the shelter. It's also on the service delivery associated with that shelter. And that takes a lot of resources. So there's competition for resources around prevention. And last year, we prevented 7,000 people from becoming homeless. It's in the transition off the streets. Last year, 6,000 people were moved off the streets or out of shelter into housing. And we have begun to focus on mental health services, addiction services, the navigation centers, the navigation teams, and a significant commitment to supportive housing. In other words, if you take somebody who's been on the streets for five years who has an addiction issue or a mental health issue, even if you hand them the keys to a low-income unit, they're not going to be successful without the services to help them stay successful. And so our focus holistically is on that approach. 
The second thing that's changed is the mayor doesn't call the shots independently. We have created a really good partnership with the county, with service providers, with the hospitals, public health providers, and others to help enact this broad strategy. And so, yes, um, you asked why should people trust me because I said that. We did not achieve that goal, but I've owned up to it, and I've been honest about why. And um, to me, trust isn't about being 100% right 100% of the time. It's about, am I being honest? Are we learning? Are we evolving? Is our understanding of the problem changes? And uh, I'm very proud of what the coalition is doing and how they're doing it. And I see myself as an integral part of that coalition. Like many of us, the greatest critiques of you, I think, map somewhat closely to also the greatest compliments. And I'll give two. of the people who I think are big fans of yours, they praise your motives, sort of the noblesse oblige motives. This is a guy of the manner born who has committed his life to public service, and he's got the kind of motives we want for public service, which is to serve. The critique on motive that I hear is, this guy isn't somebody who gave that much a damn about being the mayor. This is somebody who saw himself as somebody who ought to be in public office, ought to be important. Running for governor wasn't available, so he ran for mayor, didn't really love the job. The Respond to how you – and you can blow both of those up, right? Say that the, the compliment is false, the critique is false. But I want to get as candid as we can as you think about – and, and I and to be clear, I wrestle with my own motives, right? Or my own motives because I want to feel important because I have some public guilt because I want other people to compliment and say nice things to me, right? So I don't – like my glass house is not here to throw stones. I just want to help all of us understand what's going on in our town. Uh, how do you wrestle? wrestle with sort of the motive question. Uh, and how do you tell the person who says, oh, yeah, he's doing this because it's a gig because it wasn't, you know, being governor wasn't uh, wasn't available. How do you tell them to jump in a lake? Well, for, first of all, what I'd say is um, I actually love being mayor. I love being the mayor of the city uh, of Portland. And um, the, the perception that I don't came from one single incident two years ago, when I was speaking to an audience I tried to get in front of for a long time. It was a public health forum. I'm not a public health expert. They hear from public health experts. But I wanted to be there because I wanted to pull together the mental health community, the uh, uh, physical health and disability community, and those who work in addiction treatment. And I wanted to encourage them to work with us on this new phase of addressing chronic homelessness in Portland. And instead what happened while I was sitting there in front of luminaries like Dr. David Bangsberg, the, the, the joint dean of Portland State and OHSU's public health, and, and all these service providers, this guy in the back just kept jumping up and down and shouting and screaming and calling me a liar and telling me my facts were wrong. Um, and honestly, I let it get under my skin. I wasn't fully caffeinated at the time. And I did mumble something on my way out the door. It was accurately reflected in in the media. Um, However, uh, people who know me and work with me know I absolutely relish this job. I relish the challenges of it. I relish the opportunity to be the mayor of one of the most amazing cities in North America. Um, But, you know, with regard to people saying, well, my motives are all wrong, my space is really one that's reflective of the public interest. I work for the public. And I would simply say the proof is in the outcomes and the programs and the strategies and the priorities that I've picked. And when you look at who supports me, all the way from labor to the business community, 
all the way from Joanne Hardesty to Tim Boyle, um, organizations that, that represent interests around a whole manner of important issues in this community, all of them are saying the same thing. And what they're saying is Ted's the guy. We want him to continue to work with us to help us in his capacity as mayor. And I appreciate that. And then the question is, you know, what what's the big prize? People, people, you know, I love having kids come to City Hall because they ask the greatest questions. You know, this little girl asked me the other day, um, do you live here? Uh, another one asked, you know, what what's the jet like that you get to fly around in? So just sort of goofy, funny questions that make us all smile. Um, the reality is the job certainly is taxing. It's early in the morning to late at night, often you know, 7, 7.30 a.m. meetings followed by multiple events at night. Every crisis that you can possibly imagine comes across your radar, and it can be taxing. I'm not as young as I used to be, and it is seven days a week. That said, oh, but, but, but I, you know, I do have access to a city car, and I traded it in for an e-bike. Um, so there are perks. But the biggest perk here is that I have this privilege to be the mayor of this progressive, successful, dynamic city. And that in and of itself is the reward. It's, it's an amazing opportunity, uh, but I'm, you know, I, I can't prove to other people that my motives are anything other than what they are except through my actions, what I say, what I believe, and what I do. The other compliment and critique that is more essential is not about a particular policy outcome, Mm-hmm. but about evaluating the human being. And that's got to be a challenging thing, right? And something oh, yeah. I've been through and it sure. can be great. And for me, it can also suck. And for everybody, it sucks a little bit. The, uh, in particular, when you, you're out there, you, you say, listen, I'm going to commit my life not to work on Wall Street, but to try to work for the people. And then you got to make sure the, thin, the, the skin thickens yeah. for everybody who's you know, treating you, I don't know, like you're a Wells Fargo executive that just stole their pension plan. Uh, when you uh, so anyway, compliment and critique. Um, yeah. When I heard the uh, early on when you were running, I did hear a broad array of people were like, "Oh yeah, Ted's the guy. Ted's the guy." And a lot of it was about your temperament. This is somebody who can listen. This is somebody who does have a pretty thick skin. This is somebody who can maintain uh, sort of maintain calm in a storm. Similarly, critique. You talked about 2008, not, you know, were we as aggressive? We weren't as aggressive as we ought to have been as a state government in seizing the opportunity of super cheap money. And I was one of those at the time who was saying, listen, this is a time that we should take on greater bonded indebtedness to do projects that we won't have a chance to do when interest rates are above 5%. There's a chance we can do when interest rates are hovering around 0% when money is this cheap. Uh, when we talked about, I remember we talked about a state bank when you were in Treasury, like, you know, it's, I don't know if we have to take a step like that. I think there was an opportunity, a political as well as policy opportunity to to start putting ourselves in a position to make sure that debt payments were feeding the public thing rather than just feeding Wall Street. That the that the that the moderate critique, and I don't mean even as a policy perspective from a policy perspective, but as a temperament perspective, can be viewed as a great strength, but also one that, hey, wait a minute, is it are we missing opportunities? Is it the kind of thing that that you'll be the one that the uh, that the Port of Portland goes to, that the Port of Mrs. Alliance goes to say, hey, let's make sure we don't do anything crazy, Ted. Let's not do anything crazy. And meanwhile, for people with the lived experience you're talking about who are 
the rent is too damn high, they might want something to happen that's kind of crazy, right? It's we're ref- it's being reflected in the Bernie Sanders versus Joe Biden debate mm-hmm. in the Democratic primary right now. So how do you respond to or how do you process kind of the moderate compliment or the moderate critique? And again, I don't mean that merely as a, from a policy perspective, but it might have a bearing on certain policy choices. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say this. Um, there is the stereotype and there's the reality. And I gave you a couple of examples right at the beginning of the show that break out of the mold a little bit in terms of how people stereotype me. The second thing I would say is, and I want to be clear, um, I believe the state did a lot of fantastic things in the wake of 2008 and 2009. But what I was really reflecting was some of the great work that Senator Wyden was doing, for example, in working with us when he was one of the key proponents of the Build America Bond program. And he and I have had subsequent conversations about why don't we have that program on an ongoing basis since it employs so many people and it helps us rebuild school and uh, civic infrastructure that's so important to the ongoing uh, viability of our country. Um, And I did push hard for the Oregon Opportunity Initiative that I was the architect of that would have used some of that low, low Uh, rate financing to create a permanent growing endowment for both job training and higher education. And I was ahead of the public on that one. I was too far to the maybe crazy side, if you will. I remember local editorial boards, including a very progressive local newspapers, called it gambling. I mean, literally, they called it gambling. But I thought it was a really good, smart strategy being opportunistic, given both the tools and the reality of the environment in which we were in. So um, I don't agree with people who say that I'm not willing to move far. Uh, My colleagues on the city council would say that while sometimes I uh, maybe file off what I think are some of the rough edges of policy initiatives, I have largely supported efforts that are seen as more on the left side, including uh, Commissioner Udaley's fairer. Uh, program, her screening criteria program. Commissioner Hardesty and I are in a very close partnership on the Portland Clean Energy Fund. I I had all kinds of problems with the revenue mechanism, but now we're working together to make this a national model. So um, I believe I have demonstrated a commitment to working with other people. I enjoy working with people who have different perspectives than my own. And On the other side of the equation, Jefferson, I actually believe I have helped work with the business community to move them in a different direction as well. You know, we have this uh, housing services bond that's going to be on the ballot in May, and it's sponsored by Metro. But for the first time, the Portland Business Alliance is actually one of the very first proponents of supporting mental health and addiction services. Yeah, no, and it's got and it's and got and it's got Gilliam and uh, it's got Gilliam and Jillian's the sort of the the big uh, the big business right wing lobby is sort of grumpy because they're yeah, oh, they're yeah, trying no, to get their business yeah, so clients the, the, to the fight. The PBA, ironically, is becoming more progressive, and they worked with me when I increased the business licensing tax last year to support more transition out of shelter and into housing. So I I believe as time has gone on. Uh, I sort of view myself, yeah, I I guess in a lot of regards, I stand in the middle um, in in terms of how people perceive me, where my politics are. But somebody needs to stand in the middle if you want to bring the sides together. And I believe I've been very effective at doing that over the years. Relatedly, 
as we look ahead, if we're in a situation like 2008 or like, heck, 1929, when there is a, that we may be facing a major and sustained economic challenge, that I use FDR as an example for a reason, that his, uh, his steel spine in mm-hmm. addressing, I, when he was running for president, I don't think anybody would have imagined him as, he was not Eugene V. Debs, but he was the person who made sure that we put in more public resources into making sure people were employed, fed, and clothed than, you know, maybe any president, certainly any president prior to that and pretty much any president since. Maybe one could say LBJ uh, after that. Uh, do you think you can be that kind of mayor, the kind of mayor who can push us to do stuff that certain folks will think overbold or over-risky, but that will not feel over-risky to the person who's receiving the service? The, the answer is yes. And um, I've done it throughout my career. I've done it on different occasions on a variety of different policy issues. I believe I was made for this moment. I'm not happy that we have a global pandemic. I think it's, it's been extremely disruptive at a time when a lot of people in America are hanging on. They're struggling to be able to support their families. Um, but we will get through it. And I, I think back to the protest in August of last year, where we actually expected to have widespread casualties. We were preparing for a mass casualty situation. As you'll recall, we had all manner of white supremacists and right-wingers planning to descend upon Portland, Oregon all at once to create havoc. They were seeking conflict in our community. And I was able to work with all of my colleagues on the city council and others to pull together two coalitions. One was just on the life safety side, the other was on the community side. We brought together a hundred different organizations who often don't work very well together, but we were able to bring them together to demonstrate what this community does stand for and what we do not tolerate. And that to me was the kind of role that a mayor in particular should be serving. The convener, the facilitator, the spokesperson, the bully pulpit, the one who brings the community together in times of need to be able to get through a crisis. Here we are again, and I am not a public health expert. I am not going to solve COVID-19, but I believe my best and highest responsibility right now at this time is to uh, preach the message of prevention and preparedness, but also encouraging us not to panic, but instead to work well together to resolve these issues. And and we've talked through some of them this morning. I got to ask you about I-5 expansion. You sure. talked about one of the things that you, you pride yourself or want to pride yourself on is uh, working with vulnerable populations, working with folks who've been left out of too much of the story of American prosperity, or in fact, been trampled upon by it. Uh, you also talked about how you're proud of your relationships both with business and labor. One of the ways, if you want to get business and labor to come together, one way to do it is do a big build. Build a, an enormous highway system over the uh, over the Columbia River, uh, expand I-5, uh, meanwhile increasing asthma rates in traditionally black communities in North Portland. Uh, how are you right now processing how we plan our transportation, knowing that, yeah, maybe we want some jobs, maybe we want some projects, but maybe we also want future-worthy projects that buy down on or live up to our legacy of being a climate-friendly place, of being a place that's forward-thinking of transportation. And you, like many candidates, love to talk about climate change. And meanwhile, most of our big transportation projects 
our biggest ones are highway expansions. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I don't just talk about climate change. We have, we have passed some legislation that really is cutting edge, the single-use plastics ordinance, which I brought last year, the uh, clean air construction standard, which we've now implemented, the work we've done around uh, with Commissioner Udaley's leadership, the, the Rose Lanes, the Central City in Motion projects. There's a lot of good work that we are doing. The Rose Quarter expansion becomes a very thorny one. This is a major infrastructural investment at a time when people don't want to see any major infrastructural investments associated with the highway system. But here's how I look at it. From an engineering perspective, if you're on the west side and you want to go to the east side, you're going to drive east on I-26, then north on 405, then south on I-5, so you can finally get to I-84 east. And the whole time you're going to be weaving in and out of traffic. If 20 years from now, as I believe will be the case, all of the vehicles on that road are clean vehicles, zero emission vehicles as they are likely to be, we're still going to have a lot of engineering problems and bottlenecks, which will continue to cause problems. In addition, by moving forward on this project, we will be investing in improving infrastructure on bikes and walking. We have a chance to reconnect the historic African-American Albina neighborhood under the Albina vision or something similar to it, which is run by Rukiah Adams, uh, who is historically of that neighborhood. And so I, I'd like us to think a little more uh, innovatively and a little more big picture about what these projects actually are. If we decide we are not going to do this, and, and by the way, I've said, well, I want to do it, but with caveats, including a full EIS, looking at our equity goals, making sure it comports with environmental our environmental impact action. statement. Yeah. yeah, environmental impact statement. Uh, we have asked them to look at the air quality standards, and if it doesn't improve the air quality standards, we're out. And we also want to use congestion pricing. This is our opportunity to actually do, do that. You do congestion pricing prior to – would you push for congestion pricing prior to a commitment to expand the highway or, or replace a bridge? From, from a negotiations perspective, I don't want to give – that uh, that opportunity to the federal government. So uh, I I I will say that I am undecided on that particular point. But I think you can say pretty safely, based on the resolution the city council passed, that it's a must-have for us. But the larger point I want to make here is, if we don't do this, then the question becomes: Okay, what happens on the I five crossing around the Columbia River? Are we also off on that? Uh, even though we no, know these the bridge, things are linked, which right, I think we, is a, we know the bridge is is not stable. Are are you know, that will require some expansion of those lanes? Are we already making a decision? We're not going to do that either. Well, this to me is the related question. This to me is the related question because if the if what we had was the uh, sort of transportation constabulary, right, uh, which includes the local governments, which includes the, our federal delegation, yes. which includes the uh, includes the building trades, which includes the uh, the business lobbyists, etc. If we were instead saying, hey, let's start with a seismic retrofit of that of the current bridge, which you can do for about the same price as it would take to tear it down or maybe only two, two X the price, $400 million for a seismic it's, it's retrofit. It's on wooden pilings, Jefferson. How are you going to do a seismic retrofit? It's not hard. It's not hard to add like this. The whole wooden pilings thing. This is interesting. It's worth investigating the wooden pilings thing. Wooden pi right. wood, is, wood works well underwater for like a long, long, long time. Well, it's, to it's seismically been a long time. 
for seismic retrofits, all you'd really need to do is add stuff, not tear it down. I mean, to tear it down, it's going to cost you what two hundred million dollars just right. to tear well, it down. I, and and but if you that could, proves to be right, I, and but the for three hundred million dollars, I would I would be thrilled to hear that. I I think that's that's hopefully you know. But the no, but seriously, the question to ask, I see the expression on your face, but I think the question to ask the engineers is if you wanted, if what you were worried about was safety and transportation for our highway system, how would you spend $4 billion? Mm-hmm. And I think if you spent it that way, you wouldn't just replace one bridge. I think you'd look at the fact that that is actually a stronger bridge than many of the other bridges that people are driving on all over the place. And we would try to spend $4 billion to seismically retrofit a bunch of them rather than just expand one to allow people to, I don't know, dodge Oregon income taxes and Oregon land use laws. Well, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of questions there. And obviously, there's a chance now to go back to the drawing board and look at it all. There's two primary safety and congestion issues. The primary safety issue, of course, is just flat out the age of the infrastructure. Um, and, and you're right, maybe the, the engineers could figure out some alternative solution to the wooden pilings that currently exist under a bridge that's, that's in some parts made of recycled used parts to begin with. And then there's the question of the drawbridge. And that also has implications for a growing urban population on the West Coast. The, and I look forward to all of those conversations. I agree with you that we shouldn't be looking piece by piece. This is a regional transportation system. It's even a bi-state transportation system. And what's been lacking is a bi-state or a regional transportation vision. If you impact one piece of it, how does it impact other pieces? And where the last Columbia River Crossing project really fell apart was the inability to think broader than just the crossing of the river, but what are the implications all up and down the I-5 corridor? What are the implications over on I-205? And there was one point where it almost became comical where there was a separation of the traffic impact study from I-5 even over to I-205. So we have a chance to completely revisit that. And it's worth it. I know you got to wrap in just a second, and we're talking to the mayor and candidate for re-election, Ted Wheeler. And yeah, my nudge would be to broaden the question because so much Mm -hmm. of the question then was, should we get a new bridge or not? Well, Sean, sounds great. Should we have, should we spend some more money and get some jobs or not? Great. And trying to broaden a little bit of that. How would you, what do you think is an appropriate level of scrutiny on a mayor? We have had a string of one-term mayors. Some of that might be because the job is hard. Some of that might be because they had other things they wanted to do. Some of that might be because there were three straight mayors who didn't run for election. It's not, it doesn't demonstrate any trend. Just we flipped tails three times or flipped right, heads right, three right. times. Another could be that something about our current conversation, maybe in the era of social media, maybe in the era when the Oregonian used to have 400 uh, people in the newsroom at their peak, and now they have, I think, 40 in their newsroom. Uh, my law school classmate is now the editor, and it's a vastly different place, that, that now the stories that people have time for are those who are going to get the most mm. clicks. Mm. Uh, now we are, with, with growing wealth disparities, people are grumpier and angrier and more likely to feed the kind of story that will feed that kind of emotion. And I just wonder if you have any comment on sort of the current state of the media. Yeah, I I do. Uh, The media is reflecting society. So, you know, when people attack the media the way that President Trump does, I think he's got it exactly wrong. The media is reflecting changing dynamics in the community. And if I had to define where we are as a community today and what I see as mayor, there's a lot of things that are going right in our fantastic city, but there's a lot of things 
that are going wrong and they're national trends as well that are leaving people concerned, anxious, angry. And the media is reflecting that and they themselves are changing it at a light speed pace because of the fragmentation of the media, because of new technologies, because of 24-7 news and social media. So they're struggling to rebuild their own model of operation. At the same time, they're trying to reflect this growing anxiety, frustration, and anger on the part of the public. So to your core question, what is the appropriate level of scrutiny? Um, Everything should be on the table. I I wish there was more balance than just if it bleeds, it leads. I wish there was also time to really reflect on the things that bring us together that are positive, that that, that give us hope for the future. Um, But then that conflicts with some of the realities of the business model of staying staying together. The the work you do at X-Ray FM, I I actually really enjoy coming in here because I grew up with three brothers. And you and I agree on a great many things, and we disagree on a great many things. This is what media should be. You have not once insulted me, um, but in this time, the more scrutiny you have, the more trust opportunity, trust-building opportunities you have with the public. I like to be asked, frankly, because then it gets into my head. You know, People can get into my head, understand my thinking, why I'm doing the things I'm doing. And hopefully, even if they fundamentally disagree with my position on something, they at least understand that my motivations are sincere and they see how I am viewing issues and what information I'm reflecting back from the community. And that's a good thing. 87% of Portland voters voted to limit campaign contributions to city races. 89% of county voters voted to do essentially the exact same thing. Uh, that is not being enforced right now by the city or the county or by courts. It is now before the Oregon Supreme Court. When it came to you, you had a couple choices, right? You could say, I'm going to stand with 87% of city voters, and even though a sheriff isn't going to arrest me if I don't, I'm going to limit my contributions in the way that you know came on that ballot initiative, or I'm going to do, or I'm going to do unlimited, and you decided to, to limit yourself to, I think it was $5,000 uh, contributions and then maybe $10,000 contributions from, other, from certain groups. Uh, Walk us through that decision. Why not just say, uh, why not just say, listen, I can win this race at $500 contributions or less. I, I've got enough name recognition. I got a big enough list. I can build enough support. Why, why did it take four and five, large four and five figure contributions to do it? Well, look, the last time I ran, I got exactly the same criticism. And the reality is I raised more small donor contributions than any of my opponents. Well, set aside believe, the criticism. Just I, talk well, about the thought process. Well, the, the thought process is, is this. Number one, I think it misdiagnoses the problem. The problem in mm-hmm. our community around representation isn't the lack of access to campaign resources. In my opinion, it's the fact that you have to run citywide. It creates a much higher threshold for people of color and women to be able to run for office. We've only had eight women serve on the city council in, th- in the entire history of this city, and three of them serve with me today. And in large measure, one can look at or talk to experts about the reasons for that. And the big part of it is the fact that we don't have district representation at the city level. With regard to actual campaign finance limits, I do support them. And I put limits in that are consistent with the federal limits. I didn't have to do that. I didn't do it last time, but I chose to do it this time. We're not flooding the market with money. You can't win any race in Oregon, certainly not in Portland, Oregon, by 
you know, dollars alone. Jim Francisconi learned that lesson. It's about getting out there, having field operations, being able to communicate effectively with people. And the money I'm raising is going towards field ops and the ability to get out there and communicate with people and let people know what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what we do if, if, if I get reelected. Last question to you. Your friend and colleague Nick Fish just passed. Mm. One of the things that he said was our city was lacking a central narrative. We were lacking a shared understanding of ourselves. What do you think the central narrative of Portland is? How do we build or rebuild a shared story of ourselves? I, I loved Nick dearly. Um, we were friends long before we were colleagues. And um, his passage is, is definitely noted on the city council. On this issue, he and I had many conversations, and we didn't always agree. When you say shared narrative, I guess the shared narrative for Portland is it's a place where people feel that they can come from any part of the country or any part of the world and feel like they belong here. This is a city that despite the fact we're growing, we're becoming more diverse, we're becoming more complex in terms of the issues we're, we're confronting. The reality is we're small townish in that we still have each other's back. We care about each other. We are fighting collectively against the federal government's efforts to, to intimidate immigrants and women and people of color. People know that they can come here and be part of our community engage. This is a community that, that values uh, creativity, the arts, small scale. You know, we, we don't have any big Fortune 500 companies like Seattle does. We appreciate small scale and makerspace and creative and entrepreneurial efforts and ventures. We'd rather have salt and straw and voodoo donuts than Amazon. That tells you something about the collective culture of this community. But we also are concerned about the same types of big city issues other people are, homelessness, ensuring that we close the, the wage, the income, and the wealth gap, uh, making sure that we have shared economic prosperity for people, protecting our environment and being aggressive on addressing our climate action goals. People who come here love the wilderness. They love the outdoors. They love the livability of this city. And those things, even though we're all really different people and we disagree a lot, I mean, we're like a family. We disagree a lot and we're very self-critical of, of, of our city. But I think at the end of the day, we know we've got a jewel here. We've got a jewel. And it's not just the sense of place or the built environment. It's the people and those shared values that I described that bring us together. So where, where I gently disagree with... Uh, my beloved former colleague, is that I think that that narrative is there and it's running under the surface and it's what holds us together, but it's not like an overt 10-point business plan. It's something much more ethereal and fragile. And part of the responsibility I feel as the mayor of the city is making sure that as we grow, as we become a global city, as people come here from all regions, we don't lose the things that we love so much about this city. What should I have asked you that I didn't? Oh, my goodness. The, the uh, do my job for me question. <laughs> um, you know, there, there is one thing. Just or give you a chance to say anything question. you want. Shifting to campaign mode. Um, you know, I, I really do want to have a, a 
dynamic back and forth with the people in this community. And we've got this thing on our campaign website called Q&A with the community. We're having a lot of fun with it. Uh, If people want to ask me questions, including really hard, inappropriate questions, please send them to campaign at tedwheeler.com. We answer them publicly. We put them on the record. We send them out on our campaign literature. Uh, It would be fun to hear from some people, including those who are jumping up and down, hopping mad right now. Send me your questions, and I look forward to answering them. I hope we have a chance to do this again. Thank you. Likewise, Jefferson. I appreciate it. All right. Mayor Ted Wheeler, thanks for sitting in the seat. Thanks for sharing your time. You're listening to X-Ray, where radio is yours.